I had uh, submitted another question that is actually a follow-up to what we discussed last time about qualia, because I think there's one thing that, that uh, I forgot to ask, and that uh, is also linked to the very first question we had today um, about experience. And um, so we, we said already that we have to assume that the capacity or the ability to experience must be assumed as a fundamental property or an attribute of consciousness. And, um, well, consciousness also has other attributes like memory and, uh, what was it, self-modification and all that. And, and then I thought, okay, now if you add all the qualia, then doesn't that become an awful lot of assumptions also? Because, um, you know, um, basically you say MBT is just based on two assumptions. But then I said, okay, if we, if we take experience as a, as a basic attribute, then it's logical that all the qualia that come with it uh, must be must be included in that because experience, I mean, you have to experience something. So if you have just one type of experience, the experience is kind of worthless. If you have only two types of experience, still it's... Uh, so you have to have a whole range of experience for experience to be meaningful. So where where I want to go with this is there seem to be an, uh, uh, seems to be a palette of qualia of, that is almost... Um, Well, infinite is not real, as we know, but uh, you have all sorts of colors. You have all sorts of um, tastes, of smells. Um, so there's this whole variety of possible qualia, and they all must be somehow assumed to be fundamental to consciousness. Uh, so that's okay. I've accepted that. Now I wonder how all these qualia are really linked to the avatars in, in a life situation. So... Because um, the system at some point, well, if, if the avatars evolved from from very simple to to very complex beings like us, for example, then the ability to perceive must have expanded during the course of evolution. So the possibility for new qualia coming in must have evolved. But on what basis does the system decide, okay, um, people... They have to eat, so, so they need to feel hunger. So I'm going to give them this feeling because then they feel hunger, then, then they want to eat something, or I'm going to give them this feeling and then they will, will want to mate. Or so I'm, I'm really talking about you know the, the the basic link between the possibility of all the qualia and how they how they are linked to the avatar. I don't know if I'm making myself clear. Okay. All right. Well, let me stab at it and we'll see. You can uh, rephrase it if I don't get it. Things like hunger have a, you know, uh, their roots in the in the rule set. They have roots in your biology. So as you don't eat for a long time, then your sh your stomach kind of shrinks up, and it shrinks up to a point where it creates, you know, uh, what nerve endings start to fire because it's maybe rubbing up against itself on the inside. I don't know just what the triggers are, but it it triggers some sort of uh, central nervous system reaction when it begins to uh, to wad up like that because there's nothing in it. And so that's the, you know, that's the, the, uh, the source of the feeling is rule, is rule set stuff. And rule set stuff comes in this huge variation. Everybody's different. Everybody's, everybody's biology is different. So we're all unique in our sense data. Notice all these qualia have to do with our sense data. 
you know, it's color that we see, it's sounds that we hear, it's stuff that we taste and things that we smell and things that we feel. They're quality too. You know, we get something and it, it means something to us. So it's all the sense data and all the variations in the sense data. And they're all kind of defined and cataloged then based on experience. So let's say that you were such that you'd never been hungry. You know, somebody fed you every hour of every day, you know, 24-7, and you never experienced your stomach shrinking up to the point that you ever had that feeling. Well, you wouldn't have any idea what hunger was. You know, when somebody says, I'm hungry, and you'd think, well, what's that mean? I'm never hungry because I eat every hour and I never get hungry. You wouldn't have a, a sense of that. But other people would describe it. Oh, I just feel tightness in my stomach. I feel this or that. I feel like I just need to eat. And you wouldn't identify with it. You'd say, well, not in my experience. And then, yeah. then somebody doesn't, then somebody doesn't feed you for uh, a couple of days and you feel it and you go, Oh, that's what they were talking about. All right. I feel that now. And they called that hunger. That's the word they use for that. All right. I'm feeling hungry now because now it's your experience. And because you've run into that word and its association of what it's about, when it happens to you and becomes your experience, you call it by the same term. You don't make up a new word for it. You say, oh, yeah, that's that's this hungry thing that people have been telling me about. So it's a it's learned concepts and words that we get from other people interacting with them about how their sense data is creating feelings for them. And then we share it because ours seem to be similar to theirs. Our red is sort of, we all, we all agree that that thing's red. Well, our reds aren't necessarily exactly the same because our retinas don't work exactly the same, but we all look at it and say, yeah, that's red. Now we mean something different by that perhaps, but it's enough to get along. Socially, we'll, we'll agree. Yeah, but I think, I think that I understood from what we discussed last. Last time, so this is uh, basically communicating about what we feel and agreeing or disagreeing on on the on the perceptions. But mm -hmm. what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is really the the actual feeling, what we feel. And um, I was thinking, for example, um, what tastes or what smells good may be very different uh, to a human than to a dung beetle, for example. So uh, and then maybe dung to a dung beetle smells like a freshly baked lasagna smells to us you know so so it so the same so the same thing in the virtual reality needs to be perceived differently by different players and this is of course because of the way they evolved but but since the i mean the perception that we have is just data we get from the system so the system When I smell something that is supposed to be um, attractive for me to eat, then I must get some sort of feeling data that is positive, that makes me want to eat it. So, you know, I, I must get a good smell or a good taste from the system. Whereas another animal for whom that food is not healthy would get a, a, um, a distant, Disgusting taste or smell from the system while smelling or tasting the same thing. So there must be some sort of attribution of feelings or perceptions by the system to the different players. Yeah, that's probably falls into the category of the instincts we were talking about. You know, things that were germane to our survival and ability to procreate over time. For dung beetles, 
finding some dung was really necessary because it's part of their life cycle of rolling up in a ball of dung and laying eggs and doing other things. So that was important. And because it's important, it becomes attractive. And for us, it's important to eat fruits and vegetables. And, you know, they taste good to us. So some of that is just kind of programmed into what has what has led us to survive and procreate. So it's just part of our evolutionary software, if you like. What we, or, or, what we um, if, if a whole new, um, let's say there's a whole new chemical being developed um, that hasn't existed so far. And then I go and smell it. So it's a, no one has ever smelled this before. So then the system mm -hmm. must come and say, okay, now the first player is going to smell this chemical. What kind of smell perception do I send to this player? How will they perceive it? So, where, okay. you know, how, well, how is that new quail created and allocated to a certain... Okay, the first thing that the sensory system does is it tries to pattern match it. So it's something new, but it tries to find a pattern that's similar. Okay, now that pattern means that, if, okay, it's a new smell, but it's sort of like turpentine. It's sort of like bananas. You've kind of got this, you know, banana and turpentine smell. Well, those two things don't really go together, but that's maybe your, your pattern match for that. And that gives you two two different uh, conflicting ideas. Well, it may be good to eat because it's sort of like a banana. On the other hand, it's sort of like turpentine, and that is a poison. So you'd have a conflicted viewpoint about it. So your smell would, what you'd think of that new smell or that new sight would depend on your past experience and how well you could pattern match it. And then you'd experiment with it. And maybe as you as you experimented with it, maybe some of that would change, and it would become its own kind of new thing that uh, you associate with a particular thing. That's a smell that comes, you know, after you lift up orange-colored rocks, you get that smell, and you could associate it with a particular process or something else, and then you would categorize that as that smell for that process. But in the beginning, we try to pattern match to make sense of our sense data. We try to get the closest guess we can and categorize it in that way. That's our first. But after we learn more about it, we can give it its own category. Mm -hmm. Does that explain the the new stuff? And, and that's true for visuals or everything. Anything you get a, you know, if, if nobody ever gave you a gentle touch on your skin and all you got were slaps, somebody touches you, You may not like it. Just being touched may be something that annoys you. Or you might say, that hurts. And they might say, well, that's ridiculous. All I did was just brush your arm. But you might think it hurt because that's your first interpretation. Because that's where you pattern match it to feelings on your skin. So you could learn, though, to feel that otherwise. You could let that go and say, okay, I need to, I need to uh, broaden my interpretation here, you know, and then you could work yourself out of that pattern match so that it felt good, not something that felt bad. So you try to pattern match and then you can change it. If you, if you want, you don't have to stay with the pattern match, but that's just your first shot at interpreting the data 
is to pattern match it to data you've already encountered. And you okay, have lots and lots of qualia, and they're all different because the biology is all different, and our senses are all different. And somebody got turpentine and bananas, and somebody else didn't. Somebody else said, no, that smells like rubber. Uh, that smells like, like inside rubber tires is what that smells like. And that would be based on their 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 pattern match to data in their environment. And if it became something that was a normal part of your environment, you'd probably eventually give it its own category based on its source or some other, you know, some other uh, something about it that stood out about it. You'd give it a name and you'd give it a category. And now it would be part of your background. And now you could pattern match that to something new. So the more, the more variety, the more, you know, that you get, then the, the, better you are at pattern matching things because you have more data to match them. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. So I'll, I'll think about that. I'm not sure I understand it fully, but uh, I'll give people some rest from qualia questions now. So I'll, I'll <laughs> Well, qualia's interest, you know, this thing about uh, feeling is that it's, and, uh, and these qualia, the consciousness is something that is aware. It's an awareness. Okay, and that's how we bring it in. It's just an awareness. Well, awareness of what? Well, there's all kinds of things to be aware of. You know, and if you are a, a consciousness logged on to an avatar, well, you're aware of things that come through five senses. But there's really more awareness to us than that. It doesn't have to be just five senses. We're aware when we think something is unjust. When we think something is beautiful or something is ugly, we're, we have awareness about those things as well that have nothing to do with our sense data. Awareness has to do with how we learn to interpret the data. And it's a combination of our feelings and our intellect, our intuitive side and our intellectual side. And we get there through experience. So when that, that first reality cell said, I can recognize two states. Well, did it feel the difference between the two? You know, did it see the difference between the two? You know, what was it? Well, we don't know. That hadn't evolved yet. It just could tell the difference between those two. It had some sort of qualia that it could tell was different this way than that way, or this qualia than that qualia. And that's, that's where you start. And from there, everything else evolves. So the feelings are a natural part of that evolution. It's not just that you evolve intellectual stuff and ideas and they say, oh, I have the idea of a one and a zero. That one and a zero is interpreted and has some sort of sense to it. An intellectual sense is maybe a one and a zero, but it may have a feeling sense of that's good. There's two things there. How do I feel about that? You know, is that good or is that bad or is that indifferent? So I think this intuitive and intellectual side is right there from the beginning. It's, that's what consciousness is. It 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 uh, is aware, and to say it's aware means it perceives. That means it it gets a signal of which it's aware, kind of thing. So I think it's all just you know the the, the uh, assumption that consciousness exists. All that flows in with just that one assumption. Consciousness exists. That's the nature of consciousness to be aware, and it. Um, Well, it's, it's, um, it's not just awareness. It's to be aware and to make choices. 
That's really the whole thing. Consciousness is an awareness that chooses. So that's why there was this way and that way, and it could choose between them. So choice is a, is an important part of it. So that's, that's what consciousness is, an awareness that chooses. Okay, that, that uh, last aspect that you brought in that was really helpful in, to, to understanding that. Um, so thank you very much for that. So Donna, I don't know. I had submitted one more question, but I, I, I'm mindful of time. I think I've been talking for, uh, for quite some time already. No, please go ahead. And after that, Eric had one more. Then I'm going to launch into the earliest of the, of the uh, MBT forum questions that we have. Okay, thank you. So uh, my last question would be on, um, where do I have it now? Basically, um, are there any actions that um, are driven by ego, but that still contribute to uh, lowering uh, system entropy? So, for example, if somebody makes a donation, not because of compassion, but because he knows that afterwards everyone will know that he made a great donation, and it's really just to um, to boost his image. So that's really ego-driven, but the result is probably still... I mean, the people who are being helped with the money, uh, I don't know, hurricane victims or something, they might still be grateful and uh, it's great that somebody helps them and they don't care why somebody made a donation. They're just happy that someone did. So um, is is there such a concept in MBT, like ego-driven actions that do lower system entropy? Sure, sure. Um You know, there's a there's a difference between the intent and the action, the result of the intent. So the person may have a an intention that's very self-serving. Like in this case, in your example, you know, it's all about me. I want to look good and I have plenty of money, so I can I can give some to them because it makes me look good. Or it makes me feel less guilty because I rip a lot of people off. That's how I get my money. So if I give it away, sometimes it uh, helps me feel less guilty, whatever. So that would not be a good reason. So for that person, they've done a helpful thing, but they've done it for not such a good reason. So it's not going, that action is not going to help them grow because the intent isn't positive. On the other hand, by making that donation, They help a whole lot of people. The action can go on and have very positive benefits. And matter of fact, the people who get it may even fantasize, wow, there certainly were some really generous, wonderful people who gave us, you know, these medicines. They just were fantastic. They, they must care about everybody. You know, they may even feel that way, which would may help them become a better person themselves just because now they have this example of this, uh, you know, philanthropy, this altruism that maybe helps them grow some. So it could do a lot of good, not only helping those people with their material needs, but other things as well. You see, so it can be good. It's not, it's the intent didn't help that guy grow up any, but it doesn't mean that it can't be a very helpful thing. You don't grow up because You've done a lot of good in the world or because you've, or, or de-evolved because you've done bad things in the world. You grow up or don't grow up because of your intention of why you're doing those things. 
That's mm-hmm. the important part. So if his intent was very positive, all those poor people, they've had such misfortune. I have enough. I can share with them, you know, and I'll, I'll be able to do this. Well, now he does grow up because that's the right intent. That's a, that's an intent that's toward becoming love. So that does work. And the people have the same reaction. They, like you say, it doesn't matter to them how, how the aid got there. They're just very welcoming of the aid because they were starving and didn't have any medical supplies. So that doesn't matter. So yes, sometimes things done for the wrong reasons can be very helpful and reduce entropy. And just on the other side, sometimes things done for the right reasons can create trouble. You might be very uh, careful about assessing entropy and doing the right thing. And I think this will be the best for you know other people. And you do it. Your intention is good. You did your homework. You weren't just cavalier about it. But it didn't turn out the way you thought. And it ended up hurting people. Well, you still can evolve based on the fact that it was, you know, you, sinc- you sincerely tried to do the best thing. That's okay. The point is now you should look at the fact that it didn't work out for people and learn from that. If you don't learn from it and you go, oh, well, that didn't work out. Oh, well, let me go figure out the next thing I'm going to do. Well, now that's negligence, you see, and that's not good choice making. But if you look at that and say, whoa, I messed up there. Why? What is it I got wrong? What are my assumptions? What were the unintended consequences I didn't see? And why didn't I see them? And now you learn. So now you're growing up. You see, next time you'll make a better decision. So you can learn from, from having a bad, you know, so it works both ways. You can have a bad intention with a good result. You can have a, a good intention with a bad result. And the point is that you should, you should learn from it if you ever get a bad result. But I caution people, don't be afraid to make the choice because you don't know how it's going to affect, you know, what the entropy is going to be. That will paralyze you and you can't make any choices at all. Because most of the time, you don't know what the far reaching effects are going to be. You don't know what all, all the unintended consequences might be. So do your due diligence. Don't be cavalier. Think about it. Make your best choice and then pay attention to what happens. If it doesn't work out well, learn. If it does, pat yourself on the back and go on and do it again. You know, yeah, okay. I got that one right. And why did I get that one right? Well, I paid attention to these things that I didn't pay attention before. That's why I got that right. All right. Now pay attention to more of that stuff. So that's how, that's how one learns. And you should never f- feel like you shouldn't make a choice because you don't know what the best choice is. Take your best guess. That's good enough. And then learn from it if it wasn't right. So yes, good things can create bad, you know, good intentions can create bad results and bad, bad intentions can create good results and there's there's learning to be done on both on both sides. Mm. And now that I mentioned uh, system entropy, I was wondering actually, is it uh, useful to make a distinction between system entropy within the virtual reality and outside as regards the whole consciousness system? Because, for example, if you have lots of law-abiding people, even if they do it only out of fear, uh, they don't kill and steal just because they're afraid of the police, for example, then you have okay, they don't lower their entropy. So at the level of the of consciousness, not much is gained. But within the virtual reality, you have lower system entropy because everyone right. behaves in a civilized way and that's not bad. Um, 
so is there a is it useful to distinguish system entropy on those levels or um or if sure. to the donation example well if people make a donation for selfish purposes then okay they create system and lower system ent entropy because people don't suffer so much probably but then if they if that even inspires as you said other people to make also donations but from the heart because they've experienced mm -hmm. something good that then translates into lower system entropy at the, at the real at the consciousness level is is that a good way to understand it yeah that is one way to understand it yeah you probably have heard me often say that that um You know, working on, on symptoms, in other words, doing things because it's a good idea. You know, like the symptom is that there's a lot of hungry people and you would just do it for whatever reason. You, you, uh, you work on making people feel better. That's civilizing. Everybody likes to be feel, you know, manners are civilizing. Well, you may just do manners, like you say, because that's what you learned. It's a habit, not because you really give a damn about anybody else, but you are, quiet on the bus and you don't, uh, you know, talk too loud. You don't throw things in class and you do these things that are considered good behavior just because that's been drilled into you and their habit. Well, that's very civilizing. That's good. And it helps everybody else make better decisions too. It creates an environment where people can more easily learn and grow up. And that's a good thing, but it isn't going to help that person grow up at all. You see, so they may be the kindest, most benevolent, wonderful person outside as far as what their actions go. But if their insides, as far as their intents go, are all self-serving, then they'll ha they may help a lot of people, but they're not going to grow up themselves. So, yes, you can look at it as system entropy, individual entropy, cultural entropy. You, know, you can look at it in all those various parts of it. And sometimes one part will shrink while another part swells and vice versa. It's all about in, intention is what creates the growth and action creates interaction, creates other things for people to have to deal with. And if those are nice things, then it helps people. You know, if those are hard things, then it makes it harder for people. Okay. Thank you. Eric, you had one more question. Please go ahead with that. Yeah, thank you. Um, I had a question on uh, charisma. It's sort of two questions in one. Um, what makes a person charismatic? Is charisma determined by the quality of consciousness of the IUOC, or is it determined by the avatar? And uh, the second part of that is, uh, on the one hand, it makes sense to think that charisma is a byproduct of a low entropy consciousness, since low entropy means fearlessness, power, and confidence. However, there are many examples of very negative beings who were also very charismatic. So could that be a case of beings who have lowered their entropy by evolving in a negative direction? Yes, that could be. Those those two probably have a correlation, uh, uh, evolving in a negative direction and uh, ability to be um, what, charismatic in a negative way. But charisma is an ability of an individual to either intellectually or intuitively say and do the things that resonate with other people's egos, fears, and beliefs, and also their intellects. 
also they're caring, but you know, the whole person. And for most people, we are, we are mostly in our personalities, uh, representative of our, our fear, our ego, you know, our beliefs that kind of drives most personalities. So if you can say and be in a way that resonates, in other words, makes people feel good about themselves, make, makes people feel like they understand, they're in the know, they're on the right track, they're okay, they're good. You know, say, I'm okay, you're okay. You know, they get, they get that kind of up feeling and you make them feel that way, then you're charismatic. So it's a, it's an ability to resonate with other people. And again, that's often defined by other people's fears and ego and so on. And that's what charisma is. So if you, if you, you know, some people study psychology for a long, long time and they still don't know why people make the choices they do. And other people never study psychology, but it's intuitively obvious to them why people make the choices they do. And if you understand what makes people smile, if you understand what makes them feel good about themselves, that's charisma. And if you just do that, so when the people around you and they come listen to what you say, they start feeling good about themselves. They start seeing a, a bright new way forward and they're a part of it and so on. They will love it. They will come back for more because it feels good. So charisma is a, is a, an ability to make people feel good, feel good about themselves mostly. It could be feel good about other things, but it's mostly feel good about themselves. That is, so if you're charismatic, it could be charismatic, as you say, for a very good cause, you know, that you're a very noble person full of love and everybody just kind of is drawn to you because of that. Well, you're only charismatic in as much as you say things to people that make them feel good, make them feel like they can be like you too. All they have to do is this, that, and the other thing, and of course, send money. But, uh, you know, then you, they too can feel good. So if you can make other people feel good, you're charismatic. It's that simple. It's just a manipulation of people's fear in a positive way, such that you make them feel positive. You make them feel like they understand, like they're a part of something, like they're involved, like they count, like they're important. You know, all the things that people want to feel. And if you can give them that, then, and, and many people just intuitively know how to do it because they understand themselves very well and they know what would hook them so they can use that to hook other people. And others will never figure that out. They may try to be charismatic, but mostly they're probably dealing with their intellect and it just doesn't work. You know, so it tends to be more in a, in an intuitive space sort of thing than it is an intellectual thing. But I'm sure you can learn to be charismatic. If you went to a, you know, a, char- a charismatic coach, they could probably teach you, you know, what to say, what not to say, how to act, how to smile, you know, how to smile a really big smile, you know, how to be bubbling up with enthusiasm and other things. And you could probably master it, but you probably wouldn't get too far because if you were just putting it on with your intellect, people would think you were fake. You put it on at an emotional level out of your, you know, intuitive self, then it's real. It feels real. And when it feels real, that tends to work better. So it's more something like uh, emotional intelligence, which doesn't necessarily have to correlate with entropy, like low entropy or high entropy. 
yes. more skill set. More skill set. It's a more of a how well do you understand people? Right. And if you understand people really, really well, then it's not hard to say and be in a way that uh, they like you. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, pretty clear. Thank you very much. Tom, we've got a question from the MBT forum. We've got just about 10 minutes for one question. But I promise all of these questions from the forum will be read. In fact, next time I will read these MBT forum questions first because there's a couple that we're falling behind on from August. Um, so question um, on positive aspects of psychedelics. Tom, I'm aware you stated psychedelics generally have more disadvantages than advantages, disadvantages being legality, recurring episodes, being launched into an experience where you have little or no control. Um, in regards to personal growth and exploration of the bigger reality, this is not your recommendation. I ate a piece of uh, silo, let's see, psilocybin mushroom. I guess that's what we used to call psychedelic mushrooms. And I strongly think I had contact with my guide or the LCS. The contact was humorous at times and only showed my forgotten memories that then healed me. I felt love and caring from the source. I got a message that I should have had an acceptance of myself, that I should have an acceptance of myself. I realized I've been hard against myself to a degree that doesn't help. In this journey, I also got inside of myself and a feeling of how connected everything is. Now I want to implement the discoveries to my everyday life, which is boiled down to being brave and learning more about myself and what I can do to be more loving. I know it's not in any new intellectual form, but what I knew from before, but it's new in regards to bigger picture and perhaps practical work that the experience gave me. The John Hopkins researchers are calling psilocybin a safe medicine. After discovering true several experiments, the psychological benefits it has. In one study of smoking, cigarettes I'm guessing here, 80% of the participants stopped their smoking. They followed up several years later and the result was steady. It seems psilocybin has many benefits if it is used with purpose and with carefulness. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I would pretty much agree with it in that you know, we, we in the, in the West anyway, have not spent a lot of time and money trying to understand these substances and the uses that they may be put to. We mainly have used them recreationally and in a few studies. And it's not just because we're, we're too dull to figure out that this is something interesting that should be studied. It's because the study of them tends to be illegal, you know, most places. These are substances you cannot, you cannot do trials with and you, it's very difficult to study these sources. And I think that's a shame because learning anything is better than being ignorant. So I'm all in favor of learning and not being ignorant. And it may turn out that there are some uses that can be very profitable of these surface, these uh, kinds of, of uh, substances. So, you know, to, to say to the contrary would be pretty close-minded. On the other hand, as a, as a uh, recreational drug, I'd have to put it in the same, 
well, I guess this would be a, this, this kind of an interesting analogy just came to me. I put it in the same group as having a near-death experience. People who have near-death experiences often have some change in perspective, get bigger pictures, see things and understand things at a bigger level and a higher level than they ever did before. I would not recommend everyone to go out and have a near-death experience. I think that would not be a good idea, even though near-death experiences sometimes deliver, you know, some very positive uh, big-picture results. It's kind of the same way with, with these drugs. They may be able to do that, but particularly I wouldn't expect people to have near-death experiences like in their home at a party. You know, that would be particularly a bad idea, which is kind of the recreational use of, uh, you know, of these drugs. So we have to realize that, that in certain settings that are very controlled, research should be done. And we understand how they work, what they do what value they may be put if they can help stop smoking. Sometimes they help cancer victims get rid of pain. Sometimes they have other things to help people get off of other drugs. And there may be all sorts of value there that we don't know about that we should investigate. So I'm with you on that. I still think that it's a, it's not a good thing when it's used regularly. People who have experimented and come away with an idea and then want to go off and learn and grow and see that the world's bigger. I've heard that story that you just gave. I've heard that many times and I can't uh, say that that was a bad thing. Just like I can't say that, uh, oh, you almost died. Your heart stopped for a minute and a half and you had this wonderful experience and you came back. You know, I don't say, oh, how awful. You know, I would say, well, that sounds interesting. I'm glad you learned something, but don't don't try that again. <laughs> you know, it may not come back after two minutes next time. So it's one of those. The risk of doing it often is too high. If it happens once and you learn something valuable from it, or twice and you learn something valuable from it, well, you're lucky. There's just as many or more people have the experience and learn nothing valuable from it. So I think it's only a small percentage that get really a a big boost from it. It's the same with near-death experiences. For all the people that are that are clinically dead for a while before they're brought back, there's only a, a few. There's only a minority that have these grand life-changing experiences. It's the same with the drug. The drug gives you puts you in a similar space that these people end up at an NDE. Okay, so I'm not saying that that's not worthwhile. I'm saying that it's a dangerous space to live in, and particularly if it's casual. You want to do this under very supervised clinical things where people know what they're doing, and that's hard to find now because it's all illegal. So we've got a, you know, we've got a, a problem in that sense. So I do not recommend it to be done and done and done and done again then I think you end up with more trouble than success. And I think the statistics would support that that's usually a, not a good thing. That doesn't make people live grander and wholer and, and more, uh, you know, and more um, productive lives. You just kind of look at what it does to people. And no wood, you know, no, it, it, 
it also would not be good for people to have near-death experiences over and over again. So, yes, you had some benefit. Good. That was seemed to be a, a, a break for you that got you started. Now do the work and capitalize on that experience. What you experienced was no doubt truth. Turn it into your own. You know, own it. Don't just experience it. Because if you just experience it and re-experience it and re-experience it, it will not help you grow up at all. You don't grow up from experience. You grow up from changing yourself. And experiencing something over and over again isn't going to make you more likely to change yourself because of it. So the point is that a, if, it, if it's a one-time thing that happens, well, there's risk. If it's a one-time illegal thing that happens, it may get you in a lot of deep trouble that uh, you wish you didn't have. So that would not be recommended just for that reason. But you uh, seem to have uh, gotten past that hurdle and have something that is positive, then, you know, good, go with it. But just doing that over and over is not on your path to growing up. You don't grow up from experience. So I'm still in my same old crotchety position about drugs that says, in general, they're not a good way to, to go. They aren't something that is going to turn you into, you know, a being of love. But they may open your eyes. But there's a lot of other things that open your eyes, too. There's a lot of dramatic things that happen to people besides near-death experiences that open their eyes. You know, sometimes it's an automobile accident, or sometimes it's a it's a shock. Something happens with a child, or it's other kinds of things that are dramatic in a life that just change that life. And people get a new perspective and see things differently. Well, put that in the same category. Again, you don't want to do these over and over again. Uh, you're missing the point if you try that. So I think I've said this before, but that's <laughs> that's the way I see it. Now sticking to it. Well, thank you, Tom. We will wrap up this fireside chant on that high note. And thank you to everybody else who joined us and submitted their questions. Hope to see you again and some new people as well. Hello. Thanks, everybody.